You're listening to Bloom in Tech with David Bloom. This podcast sponsored by Fabric Media in Venice, California. Hey everybody, I'm David Bloom for Bloom in Tech. I'm in San Diego right now for the madness that is Comic-Con moderating a couple of panels and checking out all the many ways entertainment and tech companies are trying to connect with the tens of thousands of ardent fans who come into the city each year to take part in a vast array of events, exhibitions, uh, conversations of many kinds, presentations. I think one of the most interesting things to note is the way companies have moved far beyond the show floor of even the vast San Diego Convention Center, taking over storefronts throughout the nearby Gaslamp District of downtown San Diego and areas in and around the center itself uh, to present their own massive controlled special events to tout their new show or their new product or whatever. For instance, Amazon has taken over most of a city block with a huge standalone structure in outdoor areas where it's touting its Amazon Fire smart TV systems. It's worth noting this is the third major conference I've been to in a month where Amazon has had a big presence, as well, uh, including E3, the big gaming conference, and VidCon, the big online influencer conference. In each of these events, Amazon is pushing a very different part of what the giant company does. It just keeps getting more and more omnipresent. Others who've grabbed spotlights away from the show floor include Dell Gaming, which is showing off some of its high-end gamer machines with what is essentially a far more than life-size video game that you play with your feet. There's also Purge City, an upcoming TV series spun off from the lucrative Universal Horror franchise created by Jason Blum. They've turned a storefront into what looks like a party city place to get all your supplies for Purge Night. It's kind of amusing and horrific at the same time, but I guess that's the point. The Hard Rock Cafe has been taken over for a series of events. Even uh, the Omni Hotel across the street from the Convention Center has the Tech Future Live conference within a conference. It's actually part of Comic-Con, but set in a separate building over at the Omni. And they're showing off a group of virtual reality video game and other vendors, uh, particularly with a game focus. Uh, people like Holligator over there and uh, Overwatch and the Overwatch League are doing some cool stuff and some other players. They're also sponsoring a series of cool panels, two of which I am moderating. Friday night, I did one of those panels. It was called To Infinity and Beyond, Our Dreams for the Future Take Flight. That kind of was a very uh, open-ended, uh, wide-ranging uh, wide um, uh, title, and I kind of took that bait and ran with it. It featured an amazing lineup, though. It included uh, Eliza McNitt, who's the director of a three-part virtual reality experience called Spheres for Oculus and Intel that's taking sounds and music from the universe around us and turning them into music. She is collaborating with a guy named Kyle Dixon, who, with Michael Stein, created the Grammy-nominated soundtrack for Stranger Things, the huge Netflix science fiction hit. We had Kiki Wolfkill on there. She is probably one of the best-known women in the video game business. She is the studio head for 343 Industries and the Halo Transmedia and Entertainment Units of Microsoft, which just this week reported they've made $10 billion this past year in various game-related initiatives for both PC and Xbox and uh, related services. So the gaming business isn't going away anytime soon from Microsoft, I'll tell you. The other two on the panel included the esteemed former imaging lead for the Cassini Project, NASA's uh, venture to map the terrain of Saturn. Dr. Carolyn Porco oversaw all the, the camera work, essentially, to capture the stunning images of what she, I think, rightly calls the most beautiful planet in our solar system. You know, she's now, um, I think, either close to retirement or, or, or getting there, but uh, segueing into a new experience, which she is doing with Anthony Lund, who is the co-creator with composer Austin Wintry, of what they're calling a cinematic musical performance, A Light in the Void. 
they're raising $80,000 through Kickstarter to help uh, finance the project, which will involve an orchestra and all kinds of uh, cross-media elements. They'll spotlight Dr. Porco's work and that of a couple of other prominent women scientists, as well as dip back into the history of science with material about Marie Curie, and who is the first person to win two Nobel Prizes, and uh, as well, Isaac Newton and Nikola Tesla. So it's a really interesting project. They will perform this this fall in uh, Colorado, but hope to show it across the planet in various ways. So keep an eye out for uh, Light in the Void. Anyway, uh, given that lineup, I decided to focus on what inspired this amazing group of creative and technologically inspired people to become what they are now, and to talk about the technologies and creators who are inspiring them for the future. It was a fun conversation. Give it a listen. Hey everybody, I am David Bloom. I'm a writer and podcaster and consultant and all that stuff. And I have been asked to preside over a really fantastic panel of really brilliant people uh, to help add to our audio-visual fantasticness. We have the artist Rob Pryor over here who is going to be doing live painting. He normally does it with people like um, Jay-Z and uh, Lincoln Park, he's going to do the gray painting, I think, uh, in honor of the gray album, but uh, he's going to be doing his work, and we have five fantastic folks talking about what brought them to the places they are now as scientists and creators, and what's taking them into the future as they help shape our visions of the world that we're going to occupy in the future. I'm going to start with the distinguished scientists, Carolyn Porco to my immediate left, and she's going to talk a little bit about her background. <laughs> Let her rip, Carolyn. I didn't plant that. Um, thank you. Thank you very much. She's so good, she doesn't need to plant it. <laughs> I'm happy to be here. This is my first Comic Con. And um, so I just start at the beginning. Uh, I, I don't know, ever since I was young, I was very interested in science. It's just the way I lent, you know, I bent. And um, could have something to do with the fact that I had brothers, lots of brothers, no sisters, but who knows. Uh, but by the time I was 13, I found myself in an existential quest, or crisis rather, an existential crisis. And I just got all hung up on what the meaning of life is. I don't know if anyone else went through this, but I went through this in a really serious way uh, around that time. And I read about different religions. I even, for a short period of time, practiced very, very earnestly, practiced my own religion at the time, which was Catholicism. None of that worked for me. I even looked into existentialism, and that really didn't work for me. Uh, and so this idea of, well, you know, what is my life and what am I doing here, morphed into, okay, let's back up and start with the simple stuff, and that is, where is here? And so I began studying about astronomy. And so that's how my interest in astronomy started. I also was a teenager in the 1960s, which was a very spacey decade with Star Trek and and things like landing on the moon. Well, I was going to say Kennedy's proclamation yeah. that we're going to the moon, which I think is why the 1960s turned out to be the 1960s, but that's for another panel. So, um, Or the end of this one. But. Okay. Uh, anyway, so that's kind of where I got started. I studied astronomy. And um, the whole idea of just investigating what is out there has, has just been so much embedded in my philosophical outlook, even. So it just seemed like a natural thing to do, and I am delighted that I chose that course in life because I got to do some incredibly remarkable things. Uh, and I think since this panel is going to be discussing science and art, right? Isn't it's, that part it's, of it? Yeah, and shaping our visions of the future. But, but you are now busy doing some of that on both sides, on the science and the art. So talk about yes, that. Yes, well, I'll just say that is the, uh, he didn't... Uh, sorry, David. David didn't mention it, but I led the team of scientists on the Cassini mission at Saturn that took all those pictures, in case you didn't know that. So, um, and I made a point of doing what had not been done before, and remember I got started on that project 27 years ago, made a point of presenting our images in as beautiful a way as possible. Without, without really cheating, but 
you know, just trying to go after realism in the So no, no filters, no Instagram filters? No Instagram no filters, Instagram. no, okay. no. Um, no, no, no photoshops to, no photoshop. to, to hide the fact that the earth is really fat. <laughs> 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 you're saying it's all in the shape. <laughs> 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 foreshadowing. Yeah. Hashtag nope. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, uh, we have we just took. I mean, you can't take a bad picture of Saturn because it's the most beautiful planet in our solar system. But uh, spent a lot of effort making those pictures beautiful so that people would feel connected to the whole you know, journey and the adventure around Saturn that we did. And, um, and I just promoted, I tried to promote on my website art. You know, you can go to our website, cyclops.org, and there's a page there dedicated, a whole section dedicated to space artists, because I think that they, what they do is just phenomenally good and they're like kindred souls. So it's, it's only natural to me to be involved in this thing that I'm involved in, which is called Life in the Void. It's going to be science theater, a concert with actors, and, and three of us scientists are going to be some of the actors, so this is going to be a new thing for me. So you're going to be an actual actor, or an actor's going to play you? No, I'm going to be... You're going to uh, be the actor. I'm, I guess I'm calling myself an actor. Yeah, I guess a performer. A performer. A scientist, actor... Performer. Or... Perf yeah. Okay, okay well, anyway, so that's... I guess that's all I'll say. I just, uh, you know, art... Uh, is a way to uh, engage people through beauty or however you want to present it. And uh, beauty is something that motivates people, it connects with people. And so uh, emphasizing the beauty there is in science, not only in the visual aspect of it, but the intellectual aspect of it, is something that I'll always be in support of. All right, Tony, why, where did you get, what got you to working with a famous scientist and, and what inspired you to go into the creative <clears throat> following pursuit that you've, you've been in? And I'm also amazed, I had no idea that you went through that whole the existential wandering crisis and the, the dance with Catholicism. I didn't know that. That's, that's amazing. That, that really mirrors my story and my pathway. And it kind of mirrors, doesn't it, not with what you're trying to do? Oh, like yeah. the yeah, 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 just yeah. accidentally. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. We're, we're telling, it's, it's hard to explain, but let's just say it's uh, Cosmos meets Fantasia, right? And we have three live world renowned scientists um, <clears throat> Maria Spurpu. Uh, Alice Roberts, and of course, as Neil Tyson says, Adam Saturn herself. Uh, <laughs> Carolyn. Uh, Adam Saturn, I like much better than Dr. Porco. I, must I say. do too. It sounds it's great, good. doesn't it? We should get an initiative going to call her that all the time. It's, it's a shame we can't go out to the Pioneer uh, spacecraft and inscribe that. Um, the gold <laughs> it's a little late. Little late. Work, you know. That you guys worked on. Um, so where did you start? Okay, yeah. So, so here's the thing. Um, I came from this uh, uh, family that was very, very devoutly uh, Orthodox Mormon in Salt Lake City, Utah. And when you grow up in that environment, it's just everything is regimented. The entire life is like a, um, a fill-in-the-blank, um, made-to-order life of meaning and purpose, where everything is told. Everything you need to know about the world is like it's in this book. It's like the great book, the wonderful book of Mormon. Just read it, and all your questions will be answered. And that works for some people. It worked for my parents, and it was fine. But for me, it didn't. And so I was this really like tortured kid, like ah, oh, what is what is the meaning of all of this? And like this doesn't make any sense. There's all these internal inconsistencies here. What's going on? And uh, my life has forever changed when, uh, when I was a teenager, I started a, I wasn't allowed to watch anything that was R-rated or like had naughty words or images in it. But my parents couldn't extend that. They just didn't have a concept of like foreign film or indie film or art film. So I discovered filmmaking uh, as a way to escape this tiny, tiny little bubble of the world. And at age 16, uh, I'm this nerdy, gawky, awkward kid, and I swear to God this is true, I'm not making this up, I signed up to take honors physics because I think it'll help me talk to girls. <laughs> yeah, that, that always works, actually. If, uh, you know, ask, ask, ask Neil deGrasse Tyson. It does. It works out for him. It does. It took like 10 fucking years, man, but it worked. <laughs> <laughs> Patience pays off with physics, yeah. you know. Ladies and gentlemen, take a physics class and prove your personal life. I think you did more than yeah. one. But... Uh, and I just, I just, I just, I fell in love with, uh, with, with, with science, especially with physics, because physics is the science of motion. It's the science of how things move, and you're constantly almost trying to get to the heart of that. How do things move, and why? 
uh, this opened up this whole new world, and so I just said, well, like that's it. I'm going to be a filmmaker. I want to tell stories. I want to I want to uh, create little portals that, that access all these faraway places, and and it, it just so happens that these things uh, were married in my life, and I didn't even know it. I didn't even know that they were two of the same disciplines. Science and art is the same thing. I'm here to tell you all that that science and art is two sides of the same coin. In artistic disciplines, we work to elucidate deeply held, hidden truths about the human experience. We connect one abyss of the self to the other. In science, we are elucidating and working hard to elucidate the deeply held, hidden truths of the physical world that we all live in and are all made of. They're just, it's the same pursuit, just in, in two different directions. The outerverse and one into the innerverse. Um, and I find that so beautiful. Uh, I never even intended to marry these two things. Uh, I just, I, I was a teenager, I thought it would be like an important But being an ex-Mormon, marrying more than one thing is what it's you It's totally lost. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> who, who would have thought? Bringing it all back home, that's <laughs> yeah. all right. Right? It's like, okay, cool, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get flirty with all the best that life has to offer. Yeah, that's right, man. Yeah. Hello, physics. And that sent me on this path, and uh, I met my dear friend uh, and partner, Austin Wintry, is an incredible composer, he's co-creator of Light in the Void. We met on the streets of Park City, Utah, at the Sundance Film Festival 10 years ago, and here we are today making a science theater concert for you all. <laughs> in Denver, but... Uh... In Denver, but we'll live stream on Twitch, uh, and we're, the plan is to bring it to every city in the world to get it out there. Um, you can uh, go to litvconcert.com, we're going to have a beautiful concert video of this. We're going to have albums and vinyls and collectibles. And, and you guys have a booth up in the Omni Theater. We do. Omni Hotel. We have a booth uh, designed Hotel. and created by our incredible resident artist, Mia Savage, sitting right over there. Thank you. For an amazing booth. Beautiful. Uh, and so I'm very lucky in life. I find deep, deep, profound meaning and, and, and just purpose in everything that people in this community do. And I get to be a cheerleader for it. So. Right. Uh, Kyle, what what got you going to where you are now? I had a big existential crisis and, um... <laughs> <laughs> I'm detecting a theme it, here. It starts everything that yeah, success. The existential is weird. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is. Um, so I guess the, one of the earliest ways that I kind of dealt with um, all the things that go through your head when you're coming of age is through music, um, so I, I started to look for the types of music that weren't as prevalent in society, so I got into a lot of the weirder kind of experimental stuff and got pretty deep into learning about that, um, never really thinking that I would do it myself, but just Learning about animals and as a therapeutic kind of uh, what kind of artists? Yeah. Okay. What kind of yeah? Artists? Were there you know you said weirder, more experimental music? Like what kind of what kind of folks? Like there's, there's an artist who went by the name Oval. Um, his name is Marcus Pop. Um, he he was probably one of the, the most important ones for me in in a lot of ways because he he came up with this system of making music that. Sound, it's very digital and it sounds almost like noise, but it's all very melodic at the same time. It's very experimental and it's running on like this cube that's a multi-sided touch screen where you move around the shapes and create. Basically, it's a custom instrumental interface. Yeah, it's word in the world. Um, and it, it always reminded me of like, a city waking up in the morning, but in tune with each other. So he was, he was a big influence, um, you know, Apex Twin, those kind of things. And, and what are you doing now? Most recently, I've been working with Eliza on um, Spheres, which is a three-part VR series about space. I'll let her talk about that more. Um, but I've been doing music for that, and it's been a lot of fun. So. So what's it like for you in terms of creating music in a new medium like virtual reality? Is that is that a different experience? I mean, we're, we're now creating visions and experiences that are far more immersive than 
filmmakers or traditional musicians could do? What is it like to create music in this space and interact with somebody like Eliza and her team? It's been a lot of fun. Uh, before I actually got into being able to do music as, as a living, which I guess I should mention, um, because making music for a while, and we got a really cool email one day. <coughs> these guys named the Duffer Brothers. And they said, hey, we're going to make a sci-fi horror thriller with women writing for Netflix. Are you interested? <laughs> Answer was yeah, so, sure. Why not? Boxes, so we yeah. did that, and then that the Stranger Things. Um, so that allowed me to focus on music instead of software design. So there is a point to the story. Um, but so you did the music for Stranger Things. Yes. So we don't want to get this buried. And you did all this sort of '80s throwback. Uh, let's give a little hand for Stranger Things. But I love how you bury the lead. Thanks a lot, buddy. Uh, you know, so we did Stranger Things, and that's music that I think came out before you were born. Uh, well, I was born in 83, so... Okay, so this is what your, your nursery <laughs> rhymes were, right? It was like, I don't know, Giorgio Moroder or something. Yeah, Giorgio Moroder. So, okay. So, so you did that, and now you're working with Eliza on this project. Okay. And so to answer your question about... Working in a space like this, I was doing software development before that was my day job. That was what paid for the synthesizers that made the Stranger Things music because they're not cheap. Um, but I was familiar with the, the development cycle and iterative um, design and working with parameters and developers and everything like that. So while it is very different than, than working to flat, flatties. <laughs> not like the earth which is not flat but actually the earth is a VR experience too isn't it so uh, in an immersive environment where you can manipulate things um, that became a little more natural to me because I was kind of familiar with that from software developments long story to that one small point but it's, it's kind of natural Okay, so you, you did things like software development, so you were used to working with teams, working in the ways that Eliza, as uh, the whip hand in this thing, would do in a more technology-driven space as opposed to a more traditional film, but you'd worked also in a very long-term big project with the Duffy Brothers in uh, Stranger Things. So Eliza, where'd you start? How'd you end up doing what you're doing for Oculus? I'm Eliza McMitt, and I am a writer and director and virtual reality artist. Uh, my heart, my passion, and soul is, uh, is science. And I actually discovered uh, storytelling through science. And uh, when I was 17 years old, I was a two-time winner of the Intel Science Fair for um, research on uncovering the mystery of vanishing honeybees. And uh, my award was to visit the Large Hadron Collider at CERN. They didn't give you like a big pot of honey or anything? They gave me a big pot of cash. Oh, there's that. <laughs> Even better, buy all the honey you want. I got it. That's great. I used to my very first camera. And what'd you get? What did I get? Yeah, what'd you buy? The camera? Yeah. It was an SD, it was one of the very first SD chip digital cameras because I wanted a light rig that I could take with me to CERN. No, it was like, it was little and it was digital, I don't remember what it was called. But I took that to CERN and uh, this was at the time when CERN was shut down. So, and you guys are familiar with the particle accelerator. Well, so they started and then they had a problem. They shut it down for another year to fix that's some of the issues that blew up yes. almost, almost literally, right? So, yeah. and so that's you, where I got to go. Uh, so, everything, no, no, but it was so cool because I got to have an experience that not many people get, which is that I got to walk inside of the large hadron glider in the underbelly. And then she became Spider Man, so. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, it was basically then, you know, where I'm inside of this accelerator where scientists are uncovering the deepest mysteries of our universe that I fell in love with these bigger ideas of what lies beyond this world that we live in. And uh, the project that I am now 
now working on in collaboration with Oculus is a three-part virtual reality series called Spheres, which explores the music of the cosmos, because space is not sound, it's actually full of sounds. And so through this series, we uncover its music, and uh, it's executive produced by uh, Darren Aronofsky, and uh, stars Jessica Chastain, and punk uh, rock legend Patty Smith. All right. <laughs> so it'll be coming out this fall. Does the does, does, does space sound like oval? Is that? I just wanted to check with you. Actually, so black holes, this is part of yeah. what the inspiration was, was this uh, discovery of uh, black holes. And they actually sound, <laughs> it's like the two most massive forces in the universe colliding, and they sound like... Oh, oh that, that is so unimpressive. I mean, it's like you got a black hole that light can't escape, and it goes, that's it? Yeah. It's like, at least do it in a deep voice, I mean. That's the inspiration for the series, and so that's what I gave to, um, you know, Kyle and Michael to um, create a, you know, a whole world of sound around this idea that you can actually listen to space. So this is not going to be a, a rehash of Hulse the Planets. This is going to be new music inspired by the actual sounds of space. That's correct. In, in space, no one can hear you scream, but they can't hear you go, whoop. That is wrong. It turns out. Good to know. In space, you can hear frequencies. There are frequencies that we can detect. And with those, we can make them into music. Oh, okay, that's an important clarification. Yes. I'm just, you know, itching to yes. say. Yeah. <laughs> no, it, it is true. We have a scientist. Yes, right. What you're doing is under the game. No, continue. Go, don't stop. I mean, you're you're rolling. Play the game, player two. Yes. Okay, so sound. You want me to get nerdy on totally. you? Totally. Yes. 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 Here's way less. She asked a crowd at Comic Con, "Do you want me to get nerdy?" I mean, come on. <laughs> It's her first, yeah, be gentle. Okay, okay, sound is a specific kind of vibration. It's a longitudinal wave, it's called an acoustic wave, that needs a medium to travel in. Okay, so there is no medium and you can't really, your ears couldn't pick up sound. You're talking about people who are taking a frequency, in this case, the frequency of the gravitational wave that was produced by these two Black collisions. holes colliding. Which we've only recently been able to capture, right? Yeah, in that, 2017. Yeah. yeah. 2017 was the 20, first. Yeah. I forget. I'm losing right, track of time. Time flies when you're capturing yeah. black hole sounds. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely magnificent accomplishment. It took, yeah. I think, three decades to get the instrument to the point of sensitivity that it could detect that. They turned it on, and within, I think, a week they found this. But anyway, it's they're taking a frequency of gravitational waves, which you know we can't uh, we can't hear or feel even, and um, they're not even they have to shift that into the realm where you could hear it, and then also uh, they just show you. Well, anyway, they just they just do a conversion and they turn it into music. So that's what you need. Yes. There's lots of there's lots of things there that have frequencies to them, and you can turn them into sound. Okay, it's not sound itself. By the way, this is a, uh, uh, please start as an element experiment. If you turn your key to channel three, you know that you're going to be picking That's kind of old school. Yeah, well, I, I think TV still can do it. It is possible. Right, right. Uh, a big, like a, a portion of that is you're listening to the Big Bang, like the little faint afterglow. The very of the Big Bang. Yeah. Tiny, tiny, tiny force. Tiny, tiny. <laughs> <laughs> we, we won't ask you to elucidate how many millis micron bits that is, but... Uh, Milijanskis. Mil Milijanskis, yeah, yeah. Janskis? That's a unit? It's a Jansky? I like that. That's a cool That's unit. That's a unit? That's amazing. I've never heard that. I um, never expected I'd be having this conversation. <laughs> I am... I would have come prepared if you had told me it was going to be like... No, Milijanskis, I'm, I'm totally into that. So, Kiki, <laughs> Kiki, you've been in the game business for a long time, despite your youthful demeanor, uh, and running a, a bunch of cool stuff for Microsoft, and I think it looks like since the last time I saw you talking on a stage, they've added more titles because you didn't have enough thousand things to do. Talk about where you got started and how you ended up as the probably the most prominent girl gamer in the universe. Um, thank you for that. Absolutely. Thank you. <laughs> 
probably the least sciencey up here. I definitely come more from the outside. Um, my story started with needing a job. Um, and money. <laughs> no existential crisis for you. I just need money, man. <laughs> it's a parental crisis. Um, but uh, yeah, so I, um, it's funny because my, my connection to sort of uh, science in the future is obviously I work on a science fiction IP, I work on a um, game and IP called Halo. Um, but really what drew me into video games, which is where my path started, was um, it was it was incredible for me. I, I had an art background, um, and I came up through art and video editing and compositing. And, um, growing up as more of an artist, you're kind of always told that science wasn't your thing, right? Like you're either on the creative side or you're on the science and technology side. And um, so when I actually discovered all of these digital tools that could expand my creativity like far beyond what I imagined. Um, that's actually what led me into video game development at the time, which is moving really quickly. It's such a competitive market. The technology was growing so quickly um, that I was really captivated by what I felt like could be unleashed creatively um, by the technology that was being pushed in video games. Um, and since then, it's interesting because it sort of has evolved in, in my personal passions which really dovetailed with sort of that passion around what technology enabled for me. Um, I mean, I've always been really intrigued with, with history. I studied a lot of art history and literature and literal Chinese history. And really intrigued by sort of the threads that bind um, cultures and generations and time and behaviors together. So really the idea of storytelling and shared experiences and what those mean over time, and especially today as we think about what technologies enable as far as what it means to have a shared experience or what kind of story you can tell with frequencies in space and VR. Like it's, it's pretty, um, it's extraordinary. It's extraordinary to take these themes of play and storytelling and things that have brought humans together forever, right? And bring them into these new mediums and these experiences. Like I, now that I actually understand it, I sound in space. Um, but understanding that. And Milijansky, so I just want to right, clarify. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's extraordinary to imagine the experience people are having of hearing what space is and telling a story around that and having that story shared. You know, that's how, when I think about the future, and there's the future that we envision in our science fiction in the Halo world, and then there's the future I envision as a game maker and someone who spends. Um, a lot of my time in the transmedia space, what it means for people to be able to share stories and experiences and histories and things that they couldn't even conceive of um, with all of this technology is really sort of what drives me forward. And so I, I imagine what it is for thousands of people at the same time around the world to imagine a moment in time and space that is so far removed, but people like the panel here and elsewhere are making that happen. Right? To me, that's the science fiction that we're living today, and that's what I'm really excited about being able to enable, whether through video games or storytelling or, or both. You know, it's interesting because we were handed these wonderful shirts. Hang, uh, put yours up, Tony. It's, it's very entertaining. Not flat. Not flat. We checked. Yeah. That's what it says. <laughs> with the JPL logo. It's true. NASA. NASA logo. <laughs> Not, not uh, though they do know each other, uh, but yeah, this is WeCheck, and I, uh, um, yeah, so uh, we're we're moving beyond the world of flatties in in entertainment too. Uh, but uh, I, I'm sort of curious because you know films like 2001, uh, uh, TV shows, uh, certainly the pulp from the pulp fiction days of science fiction, even going back to Jules Verne, have helped us think about what the future looks like. Even Tomorrowland at Disney helped us envision what a future would look like. And now we're using new tools. So the thing that you guys are working on, the, the VR projects that you guys are working on, how, do you think that the technologies we're using to tell these stories now will, sh will change the way 
we think of the future. It's been kind of dystopian for the last 25, 30 years. It's more like Alien than, you know, I don't know, even Danger Will Robinson. But, I mean, uh, the, do the technologies and the way we receive them, the immersive stuff, the these trans, uh, use transmedia, I haven't heard that for a while, uh, uh, do they change the way our visions of the future will be received? What do you guys think? Anybody want to jump on that? I have one quick thing to say. I don't know. I don't know if they will change our vision of the future necessarily, but I think that they have the power to shape shape the future by making us more empathetic to situations that we don't understand by being able to actually more closely experience that that type of a situation. Like I don't know, a bomb that's in the interior, like whatever. Seeing that in virtual reality I think is a much more profound Absolutely. They talk about they talk about VR being the empathy engine for instance. I mean I think it's a really good point. All of a sudden we're connecting to the planets, we're connecting to scientists who've been gone a long time or are so famous and busy like mining Saturn that we never get a chance to talk to them. Uh, and they've never been to Comic Con. Because they're busy, <laughs> yeah, they've never been to Comic Con and they're busy measuring millijanses. Uh, <laughs> or creating Halo with uh, all those creepy <clears throat> creatures you guys came up with at Bungie and all the rest. Uh, so you're right, so part of it is we'll be more empathetic and possibly more people will believe that it's not flat. Uh, possibly. Um, what What's inspiring you now? What art, what creative impulses, what movies inspire you? What music is taking your visions and helping shape the way you shape the way we look at the future? Doctor? Um, Speak in the mic. Okay, so I can't quite answer that question, but I'm going to answer one that's close to it. Great. That's close enough. I spent 40 years, 40 plus years now being a planetary explorer. I think I can call myself that, even though I never got past being in front of my computer terminal. Um, I was on the Voyager mission, which crossed the outer solar system uh, and has already made its way into interstellar space. It's a billion. How many billions of miles away now? Oh, uh, let's see. So uh, I, I know Voyager 1 is 20 light hours away. Um, so you know, it's been traveling for a quarter of a century, right? And it's, it's been traveling for 40 years. 40 years, and it's, a it's 20 light hours away, yes. which is sort of humbling. It's all humbling. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, and then, of course, Cassini followed, and I was 27 years on that mission, 13 years in orbit around Saturn, and... This, this will sound so obvious, you will think, well, no one needs to really say that. But I'm going to say it because it really has struck me the way it strikes, apparently, every astronaut that ever gets up in space and looks down at the Earth. And that is that we have the most precious, the most fragile uh, planet in our solar system. It's the only one that's teeming with life. It's the only one that has liquid water on its surface. You won't find surface water oceans anywhere for several light years around. Okay, it's positively unique. And all the astronauts, when they come back, they say that the impression they got is how fragile it looks. And that environment that we live in is just like paper, paper thin. That tiny envelope of atmosphere of a few miles, right? uh, Yeah, yeah, several miles. 15 miles is the tropopause. You don't want to get into details. It's do another Melodjansky conversation. Here we go. <laughs> but anyway, the, it, it's, you know, I consider that I'm about to start life part two, and I've been wrestling over the last several years. What do I want to do? What's the thing I want to do next? I know I want to have an impact with the remainder of my life. And I, the thing that I'm motivated to do now is to do whatever I can to save the Earth. So, so much. And they keep Let's not forget what happened last night. Okay, okay, but let me, okay, you can talk about that, but I do want to say this because um, we all have gotten just so enamored with space exploration. It's, it's, underlies everything I see at this conference, right? And aliens and, you know, projecting what humans do down here up on another planet or whatever. And it's a very seductive thought. 
to think of ourselves as spacefarers. I, I just love, I get warm all over thinking that Voyager, because it entered into stellar space, has defined us now, redefined us. It defined us as interplanetary explorers, and now we are interstellar explorers because we have a machine that we touched and made, and it is heading off into the galaxy now. It will Did you actually touch it? Uh, actually, not Voyager. I touched Cassini, of course. Right. <clears throat> but, but it was touched by humans, so by humans. it was touched by all of us in some sense. So, um, so it's a very seductive thought. But if you asked me, you know, if we had the resources to do it, should we terraform Mars and think about moving, you know, living on Mars? I would say, hell no. We take that money, we take those resources, and we fix the goddamn planet. We In some sense, I'm about to be a big wet blanket on a lot of dreams that a lot of people are talking about, but I'm just trying to lend a sense of realism and uh, wisdom to our future activities. So when I think about the future, I think our primary, uh, what I'm motivated by and what I think our primary, uh, what the primary urgency is, is to really um, correct the mess that we're in. All right. I'll, uh, <clears throat> I'll use a quick moment to, to plump for a client that I have that focuses on the oceans. So the, the other unexplored frontier, only 5% of our ocean floor has been explored, and it is 80% of our planet's surface. So that's another area you might want to look at, since it's going to be really important and probably covering more and more of our cities very soon at the rate things are going. Uh, Tony, uh, you were going to chime in about how you made her cry last night, I, I think. I made him cry. Oh, you made him she, cry. She huh? made me she broke cry in a, you know, a couple dozen people in, um, um, in, a, in a, uh, the room right next door just telling this incredible story about the day the Earth smiled. You guys should Google that. It's an incredible story. It's this amazing image that you and your team took. Um, it's not my story to tell, but yeah, uh, we, we we took an image. We took an image of the Earth. Did anyone hear hear about it? Day the Earth smiled. No. Oh my God. Okay, one person. So we took an image of the Earth from Saturn. It was my redo of the Voyager pale blue dot. Has anyone heard of that? Okay. So I was I worked with Carl Sagan in making that image. I actually came up with the idea alongside him. Um, didn't find out that he had done it. He had come up with the idea until years later, but he made it happen. And it was my retake of that, except we asked the people of the world to go out ahead of time and actually participate in the taking of the image by just being out there while the picture-taking window opened uh, and thinking at that moment of their own existence and all of life on Earth and how connected we all are and on this one tiny planet that is alone in the blackness of space and so unique among the planets that orbit our sun. And it was a great, it was a great event. Um, and it produced a beautiful picture. So it turns out when you uh, tell, tell stories like that in science stories, when you marry things like music, um, <clears throat> and, and I mean, you guys, you guys know this, you're making these incredible immersive um, uh, environments, audio and visual spectacular with, um, with science storytelling. Something magic happens in people who have no background in, in the technicals of science. Uh, they start to see the poetry of it, and that's really, really exciting. In fact, I, I, I actually, I mean, I could talk about influences and all that, but I would be more interested in uh, seeding my time down to this end of the panel. I would, I'd love to hear if you guys have stories of how you've seen Kiki, what's inspiring you? Yeah. What is shaping the things that you're creating now? Um, it's interesting because uh, I've been going back to a lot of older sci-fi, that is really relevant um, to technology today, you know, like Snow Crash and Neuromancer. I'm kind of looking back to, because I'm curious kind of how we're mapping to some of that and what's sort of proving true and what isn't, and really thinking about as we game out what it means for AI to really happen, right, and virtual humans to really happen, and digital humans in this whole space. I'm really intrigued with sort of the pragmatism of these technologies right now. When we go and create a science fiction universe for video games, we use a lot of shorthand, right? We, we have a lot of backstory that sits behind them, but what the player experiences is a shorthand. There's AI and there's aliens, but we don't talk about, you know, where the aliens 
how they really develop. Unless you're Bioware and then you've got all right, that stuff. Right, how so. they evolved. And so I'm in some ways really intrigued with how we sort of um, construct some of that backwards and thinking about really how our AI technology is going to advance and what does that what does that mean? Like the real practical concerns of of what it means for all of us as cloning and digital humans and all of this becomes a reality because it is. What does it mean for us culturally and as a society? And that's not super fun to think about from a video game perspective, but that's definitely a lot of the things I'm thinking about. What is a virtual world and what does it mean to have consciousness in that world versus our own and, and, and how do you reconcile the two and what does, um, what does community mean in a virtual space? really in the future versus what we have now, which isn't super healthy. Um, but yeah, really thinking about sort of the practicals of, of how all this technology we have today is, is playing out. And we have this romanticized view of some of these technologies from entertainment, um, but we're finally reached a place where it's becoming real. So, so what does that mean and how do we reconcile them? And how do we use some of those stories to sort of inform how we should think about where the technology is evolving today? Great. Eliza, what's helping you shape uh, your vision of worlds? Well, uh, in spheres, uh, we wanted to give you the experience of falling inside of a large black hole. So you are transformed into a star as you fall down the accretion disk and then fall into a black hole as you're ripped into a million pieces in a process called spaghettification. Um, really? Yes, which is a scientific word that I Spaghettification? Because he's clearly Italian, so. Um, uh, so you <laughs> and then you, as you go down towards uh, the singularity, you find this you know, bright piece of light where space and time no longer exist. And the beauty of virtual reality is that for the first time, you don't just get to see space and you know look at it from afar you get to feel it and you get to be and so that's what's has been what's really inspiring uh this journey and you eat a lot of Italian food also. I yeah, got it. Right. So, uh, Mario, not Mario Batali, but uh, some other Italian folks. Uh, Kyle, what are you, what's what's shaping you now? What music? I'm interested. What music? I'm talking about music. I'm just talking about what talking about. Cool. So, recently, I mean, everyone's kind of their own opinion as well, but I'm interested in what he has to say. And so I'm rereading Singularity is Near thinking about nanobots and how that is, I mean, he's, his, a lot of his predictions are supposedly coming to fruition in the next couple of years, and a lot of these really crazy concepts are going to be possible because of the law of accelerators and how quickly technology is advancing, you know? There's this concept of um, utility law, which is basically an organized fog of nanobots that can create just a loose net of, of um, nanobots that can then form into either something solid or just something visual because they're all um, connected to the neural network type thing. I don't know, I've been reading that a lot and um, <laughs> thinking about uh, how, like, Okay. I think we have time for one real question. If you have a really awesome question, it better be awesome. <laughs> I'm a very large man. <laughs> No pressure. Can you talk about the year 3000, writing about now, what are you going to write about? That's a pretty good question. I'm a historian in the year 3000, I'm writing about the 20th and 21st century. Look back a thousand years. What, from, from somebody a thousand years from now, what is going to be important? That's happening now. Oh, that we that we develop the technology to leave the planet. 
I mean, really, I think that that was the biggest, uh, the biggest thing we did it, it, as a species. Um, so I, that's what, I, and I'm not just saying that because I'm involved in that part of, of uh, human activity, but I mean, that's, that was the, you know, you can't imagine anything bigger than that, that we actually- Fire was pretty big. What? Fire was pretty big. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, but we had fire going into the 20th well, century. Well, I'm just saying, you know. She gave me a very specific She was good, that's true. <laughs> true. Not to lose this, anybody else have a candidate for their favorite uh, life-transforming technology that will matter a thousand years from now? Yeah, um, I hate to say this as somebody who just loves uh, physics and cosmology so much, but I'm gonna I'm gonna say CRISPR, CRISPR Cas9. CRISPR, yeah. Yeah. Some yeah, CRISPR fans it's, in the room. It's, it's exciting shit. It's, they like to talk Melojanskis too, so it's good. But we can't, we can't really program nanobots because we can program CRISPR to edit a whole organism. It's, it's it, it doesn't it doesn't scare the hell out of you. It yeah. does. Yeah. It's the only thing like I don't get scared. It should. Of you should. You should be AI, very afraid. You should. I get. I get a little. CRISPR makes me a little. It makes me a little. It makes me a little crispy. I get it. Uh, Kiki, what you got? I, 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 I mean, I agree. I think. I think being able to not just because of the technology for us to leave Earth, but the sheer like scale of Your choice. Right. Yeah, wrap us up. I think just being able to have the ability not just to look out at the stars, but also to look back at us, at our own planet. Okay. That's yes. all that's doing that. Great. All right, with that, give these guys a big hand. Thank you. And we'll see you in the future. You've been listening to Bloom in Tech. I am your host, David Bloom. Thanks so much. And our podcast has been sponsored in this episode by Fabric Media in Venice, California. Take care, everyone.